Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome, welcome. We're going to be unpacking a great saint today. A saint who, I'll bet, probably changed your life in one way or another October 22nd is the feast day of St. John Paul the Great, Pope St. John Paul II, that is. I call him Pope St. John Paul the Great because I went to my alma mater, John Paul the Great Catholic University, and when the university was being founded, before he was even officially a saint, they named the university after him, John Paul the Great Catholic University. And he has had an incredible influence on my life. In fact, I went to John Paul the Great Catholic University, not only studying and diving to the depths of our Catholic faith and diving into just this deep, deep prayer life and love for the Eucharist, but I met my husband there. That's where we went to undergrad and graduate school. So we'll be talking about St. John Paul II. I'll discuss his love for the Eucharist the challenge he gives all of us as human beings uh, to come out of ourselves and live to the fullness of the humanity that he's called us to, I think is one of the challenges so many people saw in his witness to be fully alive, to live out what it means to be human, that authentic vocation. So I'd love to hear from you. The number is 914-9149. You can reach out on social media to just share a thought or two. Follow me at Timmery. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. And I'd love to hear how did the witness of St. John Paul II change your life? What was it? Was it seeing him and his suffering in his final years? Was it, uh, you know, what he said about marriage? Was it how he faced, you know, the brokenness and his own heart from losing his mother and his father and his brother being you know an orphan family having no family that he saw you know german occupation world war ii uh he was watched so heavily by the chinese so i I really look forward to hearing how saint john paul ii changed your life through his witness again that number is 1-888-914-9149 now we're already excited to celebrating his feast day tomorrow but another exciting archaeological find that has occurred recently is a tomb of That person we know is Santa Claus, St. Nicholas. The tomb has been found. His final resting place, his burial spot, has been discovered underneath a church in Turkey. Joining me today on Trending will be Father Dave Heaney to talk about this incredible archaeological find that makes sometimes something that can be turned into a myth or a fairy tale all the more real when we see the connection to our Catholic faith and the real life reality of 
of St. Nicholas. We're also going to now dive into the topic of what we do and don't believe about the Eucharist. Again, joining me now is Father Dave Heaney. You can find him at daveheaney.com. That's Dave, H-E-N-E-Y.com. He is a Catholic priest in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. He is an author of a number of books, and he's well known for traveling to the Holy Land. And You might recognize his voice from the Family Rosary Across America that he used to host here on Relevant Radio. Father Dave Heaney, welcome back to Trending. Thank you, Timory. Great to be with you. We hear a lot in you know Catholic news media and even in the news about how even Catholics don't fully believe in what the Catholic Church teaches and presents in its doctrine. And we talk a lot about moral theology, but today that topic that is, I think, very near and dear to our hearts as Catholics and at the heart, the source and summit of our worship, is the Eucharist. We've seen studies over the last few years showing a decrease in the belief in the Eucharist. A Pew Research study a few years ago came out saying that just one-third of Catholics attending Mass actually believe in the transubstantiation, that is that the bread and wine turn into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to talk about this with you, especially as a priest. You see your parishioners coming into your parish. You see what happens during the consecration. What do you think when you hear these things of generalization about what we as Catholics believe about the Eucharist? Well, we certainly all agree that the Eucharist is the very, very central part of our faith, the source and summit of our belief in our Lord. Uh, it's obviously something that completely distinguishes us from every other Christian denomination. Uh, the Eucharist is just a tremendous center of our faith. It's, you know, right, it's front and center in the church whenever you walk into any, most churches, the tabernacle is right in full view. So when I heard those studies from the Pew Research Study, my first thought was, obviously I was disappointed, but then I thought a little bit more about it, and I, I have to say that I think I disagree. Uh, I think the original question was, do you believe the Eucharist is the body and blood of Jesus or just a symbol? And of course, the word symbol is a highly philosophical term and, and has a number of layers of meanings. But I think the question was asking people to articulate what they believe about the Eucharist. I don't think that's a fair question because not everyone can articulate it. Not everyone can say what it is. I mean, some people have a hard time describing their relationship with their spouse. If I walked up to someone and said, explain your marriage to me (laughs) or explain your relationship with your spouse, they would say, I don't have to explain it to you. It's enough for me to experience it. It's enough for me to enjoy it. It's enough for me to love it. So I think that's a little bit closer to the way Catholics understand the Eucharist. It may not be something that we can articulate very well. Mm-hmm. I mean, Thomas Aquinas, you know, took a number of paragraphs, a number of pages to, you know, very carefully explain what transubstantiation is about. And that's a highly technical philosophical term. Well, I'll tell you, Tim Marie, what I experienced. I'm a priest 44 years now. And I can tell you that, you know, in all the different parishes I've been in, Uh, When Mass begins, there's kind of a general buzz of noise. People are turning pages, they're maybe talking to their kids or to each other, shifting in their chair. You know, there's just a kind of a general buzz of, of noise. But I can tell you, as honestly as I can, that when it comes time to the words of the consecration, when I lean over the altar and I say in a little bit different style of voice, 
this is my body, this is my blood given for you, I can tell you it gets very quiet and noticeably silent in the church. And it's just everyone recognizes, even if they can't explain it, everyone recognizes that this is something objective, that something real is going on. I may not have the English words to describe it. I may not have the philosophical or theological words to describe it. But I know that Jesus is doing something objective here. It's not just my feelings. It's not just my sense that something real is happening on the altar. And then when the words of the consecration are finished and we go back to Mass, that kind of buzz of noise kind of occurs again. So my feeling is I think Catholics understand that the Eucharist is very powerful, very real, and very objective. I think that's the main thing, that it's objective. So the fact that they can't articulate it, they may not have words to describe it, certainly no fault of their own. They're not theologians. They mm. didn't study it. Even Thomas Aquinas took some time to explain it. Um, even Bishop Barron, who makes many, many comments about this issue, you know, takes some time in his videos to explain what the Eucharist is. So I think it's kind of an immediate experience that I would equate with the love that you have for your spouse. You may not be able to articulate it or explain it very well, but you know it's there, you can feel it, you know it's real, you know it's objective, and you love it. And I think that's, mm -hmm. I think more Catholics have, a, have an understanding of the Eucharist that way than, than any other. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, and you, what you're saying really reminds me of how there's a difference in the articulation of the church's teaching on the sacraments between the Eastern and the Western lung of the church. So I, in college, was exposed to the Chaldean rite of the Catholic Church. So the liturgy looks a little different, but they're in infidelity with the Catholic Church, with the Pope, all of that, as well as the Maronite rite. My husband is a Maronite Catholic, which is a Lebanese Maronite um, mm. part of the church, and they refer to the sacraments as a mystery. So you have the sacramental in the, the mystery side of the sacrament. So the sacrament, the word sacrament focuses a little bit more on the physical tangible, and the word mystery focuses a little more so on the mystery, right, of this mm -hmm. significant thing that is occurring, such as the transubstantiation, the transition into the body and blood of Christ, or that literally the grace is working to forgive our sins and all these dimensions. And so I think that that mystery dimension is so important that we focus in on that, that like you said, you can't fully explain it. It is a mystery. And I keep thinking of one of my dearest friends. I joke that she's a closet Catholic. Uh, mm. it, she's not Catholic. She's Protestant. And she loves going to the Catholic Church whenever she's with me on a Sunday, or even if, you know, it's during the week, she goes, I know you go to daily mass. Can we go to daily mass? Or if it's Sunday, like, no, no, no we'll go to church with you. Uh, that's her preference. And I remember not too long ago, you know, she was living in a new area and she was further away from a Catholic church than she had been in a while. And she said, you know, Timory, I really just want to go and sit inside a Catholic church. I miss Catholic churches. And mm -hmm. You know, I kind of, you know, scratch at the surface. Why? Why is that? What is it? And I hope if she's listening, because I know she tunes in from time to time, I challenge her, why? You know, there's there's something different. There's a mystery, and that mystery is the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, who literally became incarnate, body, blood, soul, and divinity. That's a mystery in and of itself. And then him offering his body to us every single day available to us in the Eucharist, that mystery is so uh, mind-boggling in certain respects, it requires faith in the mystery, not just the physical, tangible 
uh, bread and wine to take ourselves further into this mystery of the Eucharist. Beautifully said. And, uh, you know, I, I often tell my fellow priests, you know, the best way we can explain the Mass is how you say the Mass. And if you say the Mass in a very reverent way, you can convey that mystery in a very powerful way. You, know, you mentioned the Maronite uh, order. I, I was lucky enough to give a priest retreat to about 40 Maronite priests for a week uh, in Arizona, 40 priests from around the country. And it was my first time experiencing a Maronite Mass. Uh, really beautiful. The entire Mass is sung. Uh, and I think to be a Maronite priest, you have to pass some kind of a musical test because they all have magnificent voices. Uh, but that really conveys a very, very uh, mysterious and uh, beautiful uh, experience that is just profound. So the Mass is something that both occurs, you know, in our neighborhood, in our parish church, but also involves the heavenly powers. So it's not just a mundane human thing, and it's not entirely only divine. It's this really wonderful combination of both. And so the the Mass experience should kind of convey both. We are together as a church, as an assembly of human beings together, but we are also involved in something very, very divine. And that's a tension between those two, and sometimes it's hard to get it correct. Sometimes we, you know, uh, go too far one way or the other. But when when they are in nice, when it, when it is in nice balance, um, then the Mass uh, really is this powerful experience of God in our life. Coming back to that challenging Pew Research mm. study that said just one-third of Catholics agree with their church that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, literally, uh, I was wondering, wondering too, when I think about this, you know, how many of those are Catholics who are regularly going to church, you know, really making that commitment? Because I think there are a lot of cultural Catholics who this is what we do on Sundays. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of Catholics who don't practice their faith. And so I think that it's also, you know, are we making that step, one, uh, to go to church, but two, that step into this is my faith. This is what I believe. This isn't just what I do on Sunday. You know, I, I don't know how the... Um... I know, actually, I didn't read the Pew Research study ex myself, so I don't know how what how exactly the question was phrased. I just remember it being, you know, do you believe it's the body and blood of Christ or just a symbol? And I think that's kind of a prejudicial question. Um, but I think um, the other thing I was thinking is uh, that the the idea of of uh, you know practicing our faith. I mean. If they were asking people who were attending church, I think they're going to get a, a percentage different answer than just kind of people who are self-identifying as Catholics and maybe haven't been to church in a long time. Uh, so I, my feeling is, and again, my experience, the people who actually go to Mass on Sunday, the people who actually attend church, have a better sense of the Eucharist than I think that the Pew Research study seems to indicate because of their behavior, because of the way they they act and they that kind of that magnum silencium that great silence that comes over to the church uh, at the time of the consecration I think reveals mm -hmm. so much mm -hmm. one thing I'll just add too is um, I'm, not, I'm not sure we do ourselves any favor by the phrase that we say right after the consecration which is do this in memory of me and I think that can sometimes lead people to think well we're just doing this in memory we're just remembering you know, recalling something, a fond memory of an event some time ago, as opposed to something actually happening on the altar. Because that's the unique aspect of our Catholic faith. This is not simply 
nostalgia for the Last Supper, uh, but actually Good Friday and the Last Supper occurring together uh, right on the altar, and we are joining in our Lord's activity in, the, in both those events. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's what the Mass does. Uh, the, if we can convey that verbally to our people, that's great, but if we can convey it gesturally by the, the way that we are at the Mass, the way that we act in the Mass, I think is a is a powerful way of teaching that can communicate the mystery of the Mass really better than any, you know, uh, catechism paragraph or anything like mm-hmm. that. I'm glad you mentioned those words, do this in memory of me, those words that are said after the consecration, because those words, if you study theology, you actually understand that the theology the church teaches, that this phrase has to do with making present the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. But, you know, we don't say making present, that we actually do believe that this is Jesus' presence and we're making it present in our memory versus there's a difference in mass versus a difference in me telling you a story. I can tell you a story and you might even be able to imagine it if you have a really good memory and you might even feel as if you were there and a part of the story. It's actually really neat. Spouses, I remember years ago my mom was listening to some radio or program where spouses would tell stories and they would tell stories about something that occurred and they'd actually not they'd insert themselves into the story because it was a family story that was so commonly Mm. told, they'll actually um, rewrite it and think that they were there. And then the other spouse is going, you weren't there, but they could imagine themselves there. So Mm. there's that level of imagination, and it's fascinating. We can really kind of try to make ourselves present in a memory. But then that's not the same as the liturgy. That's not the same as the mystery of God who is all-powerful coming to earth in the presence of the Eucharist. We're literally making present the reality, not just the memory, the reality of and physicality of Christ's presence. There you go. And let me say something about more about that word presence. Uh, in the height of COVID, I was uh, um, at a gathering of people, and one of the people there was a very senior, nationally recognized person, expert on uh, social communication, social uh, media. And he was especially a social media advisor and counselor to evangelical churches, especially mega churches, the ones that are on TV and radio and, and have a um, big social media platform. And this was during the height of the shutdown when a lot of churches were closed and, and even Catholic churches were only doing video masses. And he said, a lot of the evangelical churches are scared because people are getting used to watching their services on TV and there's no need to go back to those churches after COVID is over and the churches are open because the experience of watching on TV is the same as that they get when they physically go there. But he said, you Catholics Mm -hmm. are different. You can't receive the Eucharist by video. Uh, so when the churches get open again, the only way the Catholics can receive the Eucharist is to physically show up. Mm-hmm. And we are really this kind of, you know, wonderful institution that still requires physical presence to actually physically yeah. go to church. And to, to receive all together. the sacraments. Pardon? Yeah, all of them. To receive For any all of them. The, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it is this... Um, that's that's the strength of the Catholic Church, and of course, our Lord designed it this way. I guess He knew what He was doing. Uh, that in order to receive the Eucharist, you have to physically be there. You have to physically be in the presence of the Church to receive. So, there's so much of it is that sacramental sense, that material, that matter and form, that happens. And that was the 
that's the strength of the Catholic Church. I mean, sometimes the music is not great. Sometimes the sermon's not great. Sometimes the air conditioning is not working. But if you want the Eucharist, you have to go to Mass. Mm. You know, a call came in. I do want to briefly touch on it before we have to go. We can't take it, but Kathy was online from Southern California, and I get what she is saying. She said, I've seen priests literally handle the Eucharist like they're dealing playing cards. She said, if they're not presenting the faith of Christ reverently, why would people believe? And I really, Kathy, I'm sorry we can't jump on the line right now because we have to go to the break in a moment. But Father Heine, I, I do understand that frustration because I've experienced it. There can be a tremendous uh, lack of reverence in the way our Lord's body is handled. And it can make it hard to believe. And and yet we have to fight that. That's the devil in the details. And that's terrible that that's happening. And I understand it's easy to be frustrated with our priests. I get that. But we can fight to believe in the midst of that. I would like to hear your thoughts there. I agree with Kathy, and I've seen it too. And you know, it's it's. I think it's just familiarity, you know, kind of a casualness that happens with priests. They're not thinking of what they're doing. Maybe this is their third mass of the day, so they're maybe distracted. They're human beings. That, you know, they can kind of get things out of perspective, and that's why I tell priests, you know, the best way you can communicate and teach the Eucharist is how you say the mass, and and never let it become routine. It's very difficult. You know, I've. I've been a priest 44 years, and I cannot say the Mass without the book because I never wanted to memorize the Mass. I never, Mm. and to this day, I've never memorized it. If I don't have that book in front of me, I can't say it because I didn't want it to become um, a mnemonic memorization Mm -hmm. thing and just kind of wrote. So it's always fresh. It's always new for me when when I read. And that was a deliberate decision to make sure that it never became routine. So Kathy is right on and, and, um, you know, Maybe she can talk to that priest afterwards rather than just kind of feeling bad about him if she has that chance. But uh, that we, we do ourselves no favor if we, if we do not treat the Eucharist with the mystery and the, and the mm-hmm. reverence that it certainly deserves. Amen. And I do know, I remember a lot of people during, um, during when the churches were shut down, would mm-hmm. travel really, really far to go to church. And I always, I admired that devotion. And I remember there's one church where if you showed up an hour early, you could go to Mass. And so I'd show up an hour early and then you get locked in the church and oops, you kind of just, you got to be yeah. there to attend Mass. And uh, some of the time you couldn't receive the Eucharist and there was this longing, but then when you could again, oh, praise the Lord. But literally there were months of that where the only way you yeah. could go is if you uh, were locked in. But I remember talking to some people and they would travel an hour, sometimes longer, to go to Mass on Sunday specifically for their children because they wanted their children to be at a mass where the priest was reverent and showed that honor toward the Eucharist because they wanted to help their children in seeing the reverence so that they didn't feel mm-hmm. like, you know, the priest was just handing out cards or whatever it might be. It really does make a difference. And I get it that 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 need to present the faith, especially if you have children, in a reverent way is very yeah. important. Father Dave Heaney's here with us on Trending with Timory. We're going to come back in just a moment. We're going to unpack the tomb of Santa Claus. St. Nicholas has been found. The burial spot has been discovered underneath a Turkish church. Father Dave Heaney regularly takes archaeological-based pilgrimages to the Holy Land, so he's going to shed a little more light on this. If you'd like to find him, you can find him at Dave heaney.com that's dave h-e-n-e-y.com we'll be right back here on trending and what about saint john paul ii's witness changed your life tomorrow his feet is his feast day and i'd love to hear 
how he changed your life too. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. The tomb of St. Nicholas has been found. The burial spot, that who we know from the story of Santa Claus, has been discovered underneath a Turkish church. Joining me now is Father Dave Heaney. He has known his voice as the former host of the Family Rosary Across America here on Relevant Radio, and he's a priest in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, and he regularly takes archaeological-based pilgrimages to the Holy Land. Father, you've been doing this for about um, almost 20 years now, correct? Correct. This this is uh, coming up pretty soon. It'll be the 20th trip, and I, I love it. It's my favorite thing to do every year. I wanted to talk to you about a little bit of kind of everything happening in the Holy Land, especially as we're getting ready to head toward that Advent season. It's my favorite liturgical season of the year and Christmas. And what a neat time of the year to have this news come out about St. Nicholas's burial spot being found in Turkey. Tell me a little bit more about this and what your thoughts were since you do so many of these archaeological-based pilgrimages in the Holy Land. Sure. I, I love archaeology because I'm the son of a scientist. And so archaeology is kind of a neat mix between science and religion uh, and showing kind of the objective facts about um, uh, elements of our faith. So there's never been any doubt that St. Nicholas lived. He was a fairly certain historical figure. Um, not a lot, a lot of details about his life, certainly a lot of traditions, a lot of uh, legends, and a lot of uh, great stories. But the physical fact that he lived is pretty well attested to. Uh, he lived in around, he, he lived in, I think, an incredibly powerful time in the church. He lived in the last decades, I mean, he was, he lived on one side of the Roman emperor, uh, mm-hmm. Constantine becoming Death. emperor. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he lived under the Diocletian persecution yeah. in the late uh, third century, which is the worst persecution the church has gone through at that time. Most of our martyrs came from that 12-year persecution under Emperor Diocletian. The vast mm-hmm. majority of our martyrs that we have today were from that time. It was an empire-wide persecution, very severe. Uh, and then um, Diocletian, you know, his, his term ended, and Constantine came in. And Constantine said, basically, he felt you know, I have been so profoundly impressed at the bravery and the courage of all these Christians who even under this persecution wouldn't give up. I want them mm-hmm. on my side. And so mm-hmm. he stopped the persecution and he legalized Christianity based on his experience of the courage and the valor and the strong faith of all these Christians, one of whom is St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was imprisoned under Diocletian and then released under Constantine. So really what a remarkable time of living as a Catholic, living as a Catholic bishop under the worst persecution, and then all of a sudden being alive at that moment, that magic moment when the, em- when the Roman emperor becomes uh, a follower of Christ. What a remarkable mm-hmm. thing. Uh, Did Nicholas, Constantine uh, convert? I thought that he didn't convert. I know his mom, St. Helena, was yeah. Catholic, and she, especially under the reign of Emperor Diocletian, but I thought Constantine never actually converted, was only ever friendly to the Catholics. Well, he, what we say, he was functionally a convert. 
So he okay. he did everything as a convert, except right. he wasn't baptized. And that was common at that time. People didn't mm. get baptized until right before death. Mm. Um, so that they, you Aren't know, there was a lucky? profound... <laughs> it's one way it to get a, to heaven. <laughs> it was a profound sense of their sinfulness. You know, these were tough times. Mm-hmm. So the people had a very profound sense of their sinfulness. And so they wouldn't get baptized until the very, very end. And of course, you know, you have to work that timing pretty clear. Um, <laughs> but they would be functionally... Christian. So, I mean, he would go to Mass, mm. and uh, he considered himself a theologian. This was, Interesting. I mean, we believe that he kind of became friendly to the Catholic Church because of his experience of how they behaved under persecution. And if there's anything that the Romans admired, it was courage. It was the number one Roman virtue was uh, courage. In fact, the word virtu comes from mm-hmm. manliness of that kind of mm-hmm. sense of courage. So Constantine, uh, he really got actively, really got interested in church affairs. He learned theology. He would love to talk to bishops. He actively got involved in um, in uh, church affairs. And of course, these bishops had just gone through persecution, and they weren't intimidated by this emperor at all. <laughs> so it was a it was a very interesting time of really kind of mutual respect for each other. So. There's uh, Nicholas right in the mix, and mm-hmm. they think he went to the Council of Nicaea, where we get the Nicene mm-hmm. Creed. Uh, he was part of that. Uh, and he is, I think, the the main element of his life that became so famous was his generosity. Yeah. One tradition is that he was born of a wealthy family. Uh, his parents died. He inherited everything and then made a practice of, of slowly giving it away, uh, you know, to people who were in need. Um, especially during difficult times. And um, that was his heritage. That was his you know, claim to fame uh, as someone who was just uh, always giving gifts. And um, the Dutch people uh, loved St. Nicholas. And of course, they, in their kind of Dutch language, called him St. Nicholas. They called him Sinterklaas. Mm-hmm. And eventually that became our name, Santa Claus. So Santa mm-hmm. Claus... Guy in the red suit with the white beard, which actually came from a political cartoon in the 19th century. Uh, but that whole idea of someone giving away gifts at Christmas time certainly was based on uh, old St. Nick, St. Nicholas of Myra. A very, very wonderful uh, person. So anyway, he was from the town of Myra, which is in the south part of Turkey, a very beautiful resort area now. Um, and Turkey was really the center of the Catholic faith. Uh, in that time period, because Constantinople was the headquarters, that's where the Emperor Constantine was. And so the Anatolian Peninsula, or the, what is now present-day Turkey, really was a, a tremendous center of the church. And a lot of the epistles that Paul wrote were to the Galatians and uh, people in that area uh, that we know so well now. So it was a very, a very strong Catholic center. Uh, Nicholas was much beloved, and uh, so he died. Uh, he died of old age, wasn't martyred, and he um, was buried in Myra. That's for sure. And then about 700 years later, there was, there was the after the Muslim conquest, the area was no longer Christian. Parts of it were now Muslim. And so a number of Italian monks basically took his bones from Myra to Italy, to Bari, Italy, for safekeeping. And that was the story for a long time. 
until it was discovered that those bones actually were not really correct. They were not dated right. They were not the bones of someone who lived at Nicholas's time. So what just happened just recently is in the church in Myra, digging under another part of the church, archaeologists found uh, a mosaic indicating this is where St. Nicholas is and his bones were found there. So it turns out that they never left Myra. They were there the entire time. And um, mm-hmm. and it's just a, just another chance to for everyone just to kind of review again just what a wonderful person Nicholas of Myra was. Well, and for me, Father Dave, it's so neat to hear these stories about archaeological digs of saints who we hear and saints such as St. Nicholas in particular, who we have a whole secular culture who celebrates mm-hmm. him every year in conjunction right. with Christmas with Christmas, and they have no idea of the goodness of this person who lived at a time where Christianity was so severely persecuted, he was persecuted, and then he lived through that transition of the legalization of Christianity underneath Constantine the Great. And it makes it tangible and real. And I know you take a lot of uh, pilgrimages to the Holy Land and really dive into the archaeology there. And, you know, I, I remember when I first traveled overseas, I remember going to Ireland and then Rome and France and just kind of touching, mm-hmm. you know, the, the trees and the buildings and saying, and saying, wow, I'm here. It's like a different land because it is so different from American soil. But then all of a sudden you're in this church in Rome and the bones of St. James the Lesser are right in front of you. And all of a sudden, you're literally before on the Scavi tour underneath St. Peter's, there are the bones of St. Peter. And here we are talking about the bones of St. Nicholas, these people who almost become iconic and legends who can be very distant in a certain respect are real people who died and went before us. And even if it was a thousand or two thousand years ago, they had a real significant impact on the lives of people who lived at their t- at that time and are part of the reason why even many of our own ancestors are Catholic today. Yeah. You know, because Jesus was an actual physical human person besides being the Son of God, but because he was also a human being, shortly after the time of Jesus, the idea of pilgrimage took hold. People wanted to go and see the actual places where Jesus slept, where he walked, where he talked, where he preached. So the idea of pilgrimage happened very, very soon. In fact, today, archaeologists, one of the things they use as a marker for authenticity, believe it or not, and this is a technical archaeological word, and that is graffiti. Now, we associate graffiti with kind of, you know, bad markings on the sides of buildings uh, by gang members, but Graffiti in archaeology means a pilgrim would travel hundreds, maybe a thousand miles to go to Bethlehem or to go to Jerusalem, and they would go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and they would make a cross. They would carve a cross into the stone. That's, that's a graffiti. And so if you find a place that has a lot of these crosses etched in stone, or maybe prayers, pray for us. St. James, pray for us. And if you have a lot of things that would say, like, St. James, pray for us, James, remember me, then those are all very, very early archaeological signs that point that St. James is buried here or that Jesus did this here. Uh, and uh, I remember, you know, there's a town right next to Sef- right next to Nazareth um, that uh, archaeologists believe that Jesus really went to pretty much every day because that's where the work was, where he and Joseph, you know, would go for work. And there's a Roman road there. And I remember telling our people, 
archaeologists all believe that Jesus walked on this road. And about half of them took their sandals off because they mm. wanted their feet to touch the same stones. Wow. It's just that beautiful sacramental sense that we have of physicality, you know, that our faith is not just physical and it's not just spiritual. It's this kind of beautiful mix of both. And when you have a chance to, to connect with the physical aspect of our faith, it's very, very, very beautiful, very touching, very inspiring. And that's why people like to go. It reminds me when you're talking of, I think they're called the Holy Steps in Rome, the steps that were transported mm -hmm. to Rome that our yeah. tradition holds that Jesus Christ walked up uh, to Pilate in order to receive his sentencing and, disc and have that discord with Pontius Pilate. And you can actually go to them in Rome and they're very, very uneven and no one walks up them. It's kind of this silent rule and honor that's given and you go on them one at a time up on your knees and it can be very painful and uncomfortable by the end. Uh, but there's this profound experience again that occurs where you are tangibly connected to the reality, the roots of our faith. And sometimes I think, especially as Americans, it, we we don't receive that side of it. There are some really neat relic tours that I think are very beneficial. And if you ever have the opportunity to take yourself, or your family, anyone, mm. go to those, find out about them because they're phenomenal. In fact, we'll be doing some specials coming up in in the Advent season talking about some of those holy relics, especially of the holy family. Um but I, I love these elements. Can you share with us maybe a couple of the other neat uh, excavation type of moments in the Holy Land as we start to get ready to head into that Advent season coming up here? So let me talk about Bethlehem. Speaking of St. Nicholas and Christmas and the birth of Jesus, uh, you know, one of the things that people want to know more than anything else is how true is this story? Did this actually happen here as the Bible says? You know, what's the authenticity? So Bethlehem uh, is an area of caves, uh, and most likely um, it was very common in those days to have what's called a house cave. So there would be a, it was a very hilly area, so you'd have a house built on the side of a hill, and the back of the house actually kind of went into the hill, into, you know, kind of the back end of the house was actually a cave. Uh, so... One of those caves was always um, considered to be the cave where Jesus was born. Now, a number of decades after the time of Jesus, the Jews revolted against the Roman Empire. And that's something you just never do because they just didn't like that. So the Roman Empire would come and just crush you. And one of the things that the Romans would do is they would find out what is your most sacred spot? What is the thing that is most precious to you? And they would crush it and then put their temple on top as a way of saying, we are in charge now, and we have our Roman temple on top of mm -hmm. your sacred place. Mm -hmm. Well, that happened in Bethlehem. So you know, very early on, all these pilgrims coming to Bethlehem saw that the Romans had done investigation because they wouldn't want to be made a fool of. And they did a careful investigation of where these Christians felt that Jesus was born, and they built a, they built a Roman temple on top of that spot. And so the archaeology of that temple actually ends up verifying the site. The Roman desire to destroy the Christian site, ironically, ends up in verifying it. So, and the same thing happened in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, even more so. Um, the desire of the Romans to destroy the spot where Jesus was crucified and buried and rose, their desire to destroy it, they built a Roman temple on top of it, 
And ironic, ironically, the stones that we see there today actually end up verifying the site. So ironically, the most archaeologically verified sites in all of the Holy Land are the Calvary, Resurrection, and Bethlehem sites. It's amazing. Where That's Jesus incredible. was born and his passion ends up being the most verified. Now, there's about 10 or 12 other uh, circumstantial issues, you know, like, for instance, the crucifixion site was in a garden, the burial mm-hmm. was in, I mean, the burial was in a garden, right. a nearby tomb, rock-cut tomb, first time used, all those kind of things are there outside the city walls. But ironically, it's the Roman desire to destroy which ends up verifying and, and making authentic. And for that to happen in Bethlehem and in um, in the our you know, Good Friday and Easter story is is really just just amazing. And and when people find that out, that the center of our faith turns out to be the most archaeologically verified, it's very moving and very inspiring. Um, so you something, can think about that at this mm-hmm. Christmas time. The Bethlehem site is pretty good. And something just struck me, a total dovetail here, uh, but you were talking about how some of the holiest places are confirmed by the pagan Roman attempt to destroy and build pagan temples uh, to various deities instead of allowing for the worship of you know the one true God to occur in these holy places such as the death and birth locations of our Lord Jesus Christ. The study came out this week that has been repeated year and year that the happiest people out there are married mothers. And yet the feminists today try to argue that that the happiest people are people who don't have children. It just made me think about how we try to obliterate what is good, what is holy, and what is true, whether it's a worship site, whether it's what's uh, meant for the human soul and the human purpose, whatever it is, the culture uh, that is so anti-God tries so in such an intense way to destroy what is sacred in us as human beings, as well as in our culture and in our art or geographical locations. And it's a moment to be aware of that. If something is so intensely being destroyed and persecuted, what does that mean about what it's meant to be for us ourselves and our pursuit of truth and of God? Father Dave, thank you so much for joining us. That's Father Dave Heaney here on Trending with Timory. You can find him at daveheaney.com. That's Dave H-E-N-E-Y. Com. And who knows, maybe you can even join him for a Holy Land pilgrimage, which you can find out more about there at his website as well. I'll be right back here on Trending with Timory. Tomorrow is the feast day of St. John Paul II. I want to hear from you. How did he change your life by his witness? I'll talk about some of my favorite things he ever said about the Eucharist and about the human person. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Tomorrow, October 22nd, is the feast day of St. John Paul II. I love to refer to him as St. John Paul the Great, my alma mater, John Paul the Great Catholic University in San Diego, uh, where we dove so deeply into his writings and 
really falling in love for me with the Eucharist in particular at that time. So I'm going to share with you a few of my favorite quotes from him, or at least if when I say favorite, some that stand out particularly because there's so many. Uh, but I'd love to hear from you. How did the witness of St. John Paul II change your life? You can give me a call, 1-888-914-9149, or you can share it now on social media. I posted a beloved photo of JP2 on social media and ask this question. I've really, really been enjoying the responses. You might enjoy them too. Just follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E, to share your story. Um, but before we do, November is coming up and we celebrate the lives of our friends and family who have passed and pray for their entry into the kingdom of heaven. So join your Relevant Radio family here in praying from November 2nd through the 10th as we offer a novena for these holy souls. You can submit up to 20 names of your departed loved ones at relevantradio.com slash souls now to November 10th. When you submit the names of souls to be prayed for, you'll also receive reflections from Father Rocky each day of the novena to help you enter more deeply into prayer. Add the names of your loved ones at relevantradio.com slash souls. And we'll pray for them during Mass, Divine Mercy Chaplet, Family Rosary Across America here on Relevant Radio. Okay, so how did the witness of St. John Paul II change your life? I've been gathering some really neat responses online. I want to just share some of them with you. Uh, this one's interesting. Uh, Coco Nito on Twitter said that John Paul II inspired her to look for the motivation behind people's and politicians and leaders' actions. So looking for their motivations. So why do people do what they do? I think that's really an interesting thing that I hadn't really pondered that St. John Paul II, in being a phenomenologist and really kind of discovering things through human interaction experience, really does get to the core of not the human person, but why we do what we do, uh, even when it's in our brokenness and in the good moments as well. A neat story Lindsay shared on Instagram. She said she and she shared a photo. She actually shared it on Facebook as well. She said, in this picture, you can find and see the black drape hung over the church doors after Pope John Paul II passed away during our wedding. He died during their wedding on April 2nd, 2005. She said, I had noticed that people were coming into the church to pray toward the end of the wedding mass and found out what happened after the wedding. That's pretty incredible. Talk about a historic moment in time. What about you? Do you remember where you were when you found out John Paul II had died? I was in a college course at the time. I was in uh, early years of high school and I was taking a college course at the same time, secular, small uh, community college. And I remember it popped up on the screen because we were looking at something in Yahoo News and a little banner on the side and everyone, the teacher wasn't even Catholic. She said, oh my gosh, the Pope just died. And I remember I was sitting in the class, had a flip phone at the time, and texting my dad who was waiting for me. I said, the Pope just died. He said, I just heard it on the news. It was one of those historic moments where I think a lot of people actually remember where they were at when Pope St. John Paul II died. And what a memory to know uh, that he died on your wedding day during your wedding mass. Uh, this one I think will resonate with many of you. Did any of you go to a World Youth Day with St. John Paul II? Reno Roost on Instagram said, I saw him at World Youth Day when I was 14, and his enthusiasm for the youth and faith was inspiring. Wow, so many incredible responses for how St. John Paul II changed their life. I would love to hear from you again, 
1-888-914-9149 or go and share your story on social media as well. Follow me at Timmerie, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. I posted a photo online. A lot of people are sharing it as well. Uh, similar sentiments as Kara Lopez on Instagram saying that the theology of the body is a great gift to my life and to many people. A generic kind of response that many people have, and Hopeful Wordsmith said this on Instagram, his holy witness to hope for the world is what inspired her. And it's interesting because I'll talk to people who aren't Catholic, and I'm always amazed by the number of people who have read books by St. John Paul II, who admire him, who have even said they've considered converting to Catholicism because of the faith and the witness and the life of St. John Paul II. If you've never read any of his writings, I really want to encourage you to. An easy place to start if you want to know a little bit more about his life is uh, the book by Jason Everett. I think it's called His Five Loves, and it talks about five things that St. John Paul II really did love. Uh, one of them include the Eucharist, another include the cross and young people. And you'll have to read the book for all five, but it really does give you a snapshot kind of understanding of St. John Paul II's life that was so uh heavily publicized and under such scrutiny and the faith that he had in the midst of that is very profound. When I was at John Paul the Great Catholic University in San Diego for my undergraduate work, I, you know, grew up cradle Catholic, uh, loved my faith. And when I was there, I really fell in love with the Eucharist. And part of that was to do due to the writings of John Paul II, but his witness. You, you hear stories about how he would be late to a lot of places, and in part, his advisors and people who would run his schedule would try to hide as he was traveling around where the Eucharistic chapels were, where our Lord was present in the tabernacle, because they knew if St. John Paul II were to pass by a tabernacle, a church, a chapel, that he would go in and he would pray, and he would pray for quite a long time. And there are many stories about him being late because of this, is that his advisors and people running a schedule would be hiding the doors and almost trying to, you know, not tell him or deny that a chapel was nearby and he would catch them and he, you know, kind of correct them and tease them for trying to hide the chapel and our Lord from him. But it's been a habit that has really helped me personally in my Eucharistic devotion, especially going to a Catholic university and our Lord being present on that Catholic campus. And I remember, you know, every time the challenge was was what I was taught through St. John Paul II's witness. Every time you pass by, don't just make the sign of the Christ like we're called to do when we pass a church acknowledging Christ's presence, but go in, stop, pray for a few minutes. And I remember my friends and I, especially three of my friends, and I, we always would, we'd stop, we'd go in and we'd pray. We'd spend some time with our Lord, even if it was just a few moments or a few minutes. And going to adoration every day uh, during my college years was so profound in building that faith and building that love and that devotion to our Lord. And I really do uh, leave that um, testament to St. John II's witness and example. So stay tuned tomorrow, October 22nd on his feast day. I'm going to post one of my favorite quotes, a Eucharistic devotion, um, uh, some of the words he said about the Eucharist that are so 
profound helping us to know and love our Lord. So I'll be posting that tomorrow on social media along with one of my favorite photos of a young St. John Paul II. Happy feast day tomorrow. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Have you joined us yet for a weekly happy hour on Monday? Well, here's an interesting report that has come out annually and the results with one group of people says the same thing over and over again, that the happiest people out there are married moms. I think it's worth diving into, especially during our weekly happy hour. What is it about moms? What do moms do that make them so happy? Join me Monday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.